Sorry, Randy, don't tell your wife I messed up her name. Um, It's funny, apparently in uh, first service, the observation was made, you know, here we got this, you know, stage and, you know, it's got to look better so that when we put it online and then someone had to point out, it's like, yeah, but, you know, Pastor Don's still using like thread and printed stuff. So um, we're going to do a timeline this morning. If you've never been to Emmanuel and it's Sunday when we did one of these, um, it's, it's how my mind works. So I sort of only half apologize. Like when I think of PowerPoints and stuff, I just can't get, quite get my head wrapped around that. But maybe one day. But for now, the wonders of technology, you know, like a lever is actually an incredible technology wrapped up in a clothes peg like that. Um, But uh, that's what we're going to do in just a moment uh, as we kind of jump into the book of Daniel. If you've got your Bible, you could actually turn to Daniel, um, even though I just want to, I want to begin in a different spot in Psalm 137 that asks an important question that I think Daniel in part answers. By the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So Psalm 137 starts off with a a look into this group of God's people who had been taken from their land and exiled into a foreign land, who sat weeping, remembering What was? On the willows there we hung up our lyres, these instruments they used to praise God. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? I don't know how you answer that question. In some ways, we discover that our identity as followers of Jesus is people who are strangers and aliens. We are citizens of another kingdom. That's who we are in Christ. But in many other ways, I think most of us at one point or another have wrestled with this question. And uh, maybe you've had one of these moments where on a Sunday morning, maybe in this church or another church, you're asked by a great worship team to stand and join them as they sing and as we sing. And then the voices start, and everyone around you seems to be singing, but, but what you're going through, the circumstances you're facing, make it feel like there's just no song that you want to sing that day. There's no words that want to come out. And you stand there wondering, how am I supposed to sing at a time like this? It's the same question Psalm 137 is asking. I think in part Daniel is going to answer that for us. It's a strange place to go, but Daniel is one of those very exiles. As a young man, probably a young teenager, taken from his home, his family, his life, his future, his prospects. (laughs) Every once in a while we sort of laugh at, not laugh, but I don't know, maybe it's the queasiness of the story when we discover he's probably turned into a eunuch, everything taken. And yet this young man is able through his whole story to trust God. Somehow he finds a way, not literally to sing, because nowhere in the book of Daniel do we find him literally singing, but we find him trusting. And as we go through this book, I hope in part we're able to wrestle a little bit with that question. Yes, there's 
amazing prophecies. There are important ethical things to learn in the book. So we're going to try to walk that tightrope because it really is of, of dealing with the prophetic piece of the book, but also understanding that even through this story, there are some things that we need to learn from Daniel's life. Ezekiel 14 holds him up as one of the three great men of righteousness. So we don't lose that side of the story. We're going to try to walk that, that tightrope, but all the way through, I hope in part, we as a church can answer the question. When that Sunday comes, and I've had them and I'm guessing most of you have, can we keep singing? How can we keep singing? So that's, my, that's my personal goal, is to try to answer that question uh, as we walk through this book. But this morning, the goal is to kind of give an overview so we just kind of understand, big picture, what is going on? I mean, we find, we meet Daniel at the, the beginning of his book, and he's not in his home. He has been taken away. How does he get there? Why is he there? What's going on in the world around him? So that's, we're going to try to answer a little bit of that through the timeline. And then I want to dive in through the first seven verses, looking at what I think are, are three ways in part Daniel begins to answer that question. How do I sing? There are three things that Daniel just, he just did not let go of. It was almost this begrudging sense of whatever else happens, there are three things that I will hold on to no matter what else is taking place around me. So I want to try to uh, walk through those things. Now, just so we know, the book of Daniel is going to span about 70 years. Um, If you're trying to get a good setting, uh, you can probably go read 2 Kings chapter 20 to the end of the book or near the end of 2 Chronicles will kind of give you a little bit of the sense of the history of what's going on. Uh, You can go into some of the prophets because in Isaiah 39 you're going to see pieces that interact with the book of Daniel. Um, All through the Old Testament, (laughs) there's there's a lot of it that takes in these these 70 or so years, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. There's lots of pieces all kind of coming at this particular part of history. Um, And so we're going to see basically 70 years of Daniel's life. He actually tells us that his story really begins there. If you've got the book of Daniel open, (coughs) excuse me, in the the third year of Nebuchadnezzar, and we get our last date in chapter 10, verse 1, uh, that's going to relate to King Cyrus, who is actually the king of an entirely different nation that takes Daniel into captivity. 70 years have passed, kings have come and gone, and we find Daniel still standing. And a remarkable thing, really, when you stop and think about it. And God sustains him all through this time. Uh, so we will get into all those kind of details in the coming weeks. Um, the plan is to basically cover the book of Daniel from now. And all being well, Lord willing, uh, we'll be done by family camp in June. So uh, when we come up for air, it'll be summer, which for some of us is wonderful news. Uh, by the way, Virginia, it is so good to see you. Uh, we've been praying for you as well. So let's, let's just kind of quickly unpack this time. I did run out of time in the early service, so we'll try to move ourselves along here quickly. Um, <clears throat> we're just going to start here, only just to kind of give ourselves like a bookend, uh, not because really Moses is all that important, although it's interesting, if you think of the story of Daniel and hold it up next to the story of Joseph, what you'll find are two Parallel stories in Scripture, right? Two young men, both taken from their homes, both sold into slavery, taken into a land that's not their own. You'll find them both standing and refusing to compromise. You'll find them both trusting the Lord. You'll find them both amazingly rising in these two foreign nations to positions of incredible prominence and authority. So that's just kind of a bookend for us. And then just so you know, we're going to kind of run ourselves from that point 
to here. And uh, lots of the dates, we're really not going to talk about a whole lot today, but uh, in, the, in the weeks to come, we might kind of come back to uh, some of these dates. Now, for, for our purposes, this isn't a bad starting point. Somewhere around 1046, somewhere in this neck of the woods, where Saul becomes the first king of Israel. So when we're speaking of Israel at this time, we're talking about the whole, the whole land, the whole kingdom that's going to stretch in the north from Dan all the way down to the borders of Egypt. Saul, of course, is not a king that is particularly chosen by God. The nation wants a king. Uh, God's told them that he ought to be their king, but if they continue in this way, fine, you can have a king. And if you know the story of Saul, it's one of, of great tragedy for the people of God. Probably the one that we're maybe more familiar with is this young fellow who comes along somewhere. Again, the, the dates we could kind of probably agree to adjust here and there a little bit, but somewhere around the year 1010, David becomes the king of the nation of Israel. Probably the greatest king of the nation of Israel in many respects. Expands its borders, does some pretty incredible things. And again, if you know the story, the one thing that he most longs to do that he's not able to do is to build a temple. That will be left for his son Solomon, the wisest of all kings, to accomplish in his lifetime. Solomon will build the temple, one of the first acts he, he accomplishes. Takes him quite a few years to accomplish that. Um, but he reigns as king for around 40 years. Um, near the end of his kingdom, uh, his time ruling, there's some intrigue around who will replace him. Uh, the quick version is the kingdom will split upon his death. So the kingdom now splits into two pieces around 930. There's the northern part of the kingdom that we, that we normally would refer to as Israel, and the southern part of the kingdom that we often don't really quite understand what's happening, that's actually a kingdom called Judah. So now Israel, back here, this united nation, is now two pieces. All right, and a lot of times we get ourselves confused because we don't sort of acknowledge the kingdom to the south, the, the Judah part of this. Um, the northern kingdom will quickly become very faithless to God. And you can kind of read through the prophecies in the Old Testament. The prophets are sent by God often to warn Israel, you're falling into idolatry, and if you don't stop and come back to me, I will, there will be consequence. You go back and read Deuteronomy 28. The Lord lays this all out. This should not have been any surprise, and he is faithful to what he says in Deuteronomy 28. You follow me, I'm going to bless you and care for you. If you don't, there's going to be consequences because I want to draw you back. And if it takes exile, if it takes difficulty to do that, then that's what will come. So uh, in 722, Israel is exiled by Assyria by a king by the name of Sennacherib, who is one of the greatest kings of the nation of Assyria. Um, he doesn't stop with just Israel. He also comes in 701 and he attacks Judah. He's unsuccessful. It's actually interesting in all the history books because Sennacherib actually writes his own history. Um, the only city he never takes is Jerusalem. He tells the story right up to you know, the siege works he builds, and then the story ends. And these kings, by the way, when they write their own history, it's always the flattering parts, uh, which has been one of the challenges with the book of Daniel because there's some historical details in Daniel, like the fact that Nebuchadnezzar basically goes insane for seven years, that Nebuchadnezzar and the, the Babylonians don't record. And so a lot of historians say, hey, hold on a second. It seems like the Bible's making up stuff. Just, just be aware when those comments are made that 
that it's Nebuchadnezzar who's writing the history in his country. He's not going to include the parts of seven years of insanity. He doesn't include his defeats. He never includes those negative sort of things. So, so Sennacherib describes this great battle, uh, the siege. He doesn't tell us that he really loses it. He, just the story ends. But God actually saves his people. Um, by 6.30, the Assyrians have entered into civil war. And really, they don't know it yet, but this is the beginning of the end of the Assyrian nation. Uh, another important little story right here that is recorded in 2 Kings is that as Sennacherib and the Assyrians are coming to attack Judah, uh, the Babylonians, who we just know have come far, far from the east, that's how it's recorded, uh, they come, they send envoys, and Hezekiah, the king of, of Judah at the south, he actually he forms a treaty with the Babylonians. It's not described that way. The way it's described is he opens the storehouses, he opens the treasury, and he lets the envoys of Babylon see, which is just a historical way of saying we've now entered into some sort of a relationship with one another. You don't show another nation all your wealth unless there's some sort of an alliance that's being formed, which the prophets point to, Isaiah and others, as really the moment where God says, okay, Judah, You've just shown yourself to be faithless because of that action. The action of forming an alliance with the people instead of trusting in their God. Uh, Again, sort of one of those moments of the beginning of the end for Judah. Uh, In 616, Egypt goes to war with Assyria. So at this point in history, we've got basically three large empires all vying for world domination. Babylon in the Far East, Assyria a little closer, and then Egypt. Unfortunately for Judah, they are smack dab in the middle of it, which leads to some very interesting decisions that the kings of Judah will make. The first one comes in 609, when largely a wise and good king by the name of Josiah, who restores temple worship, who leads the people back to God, makes a very puzzling decision that he will attack Egypt. Now, the reason it's so puzzling is because There was no way, humanly speaking, that Judah was going to be able to defeat the emperor Nico as he led his armies to actually fight Assyria. So so Egypt's coming up the road along the coast, if you can kind of picture the Mediterranean. He's leading his armies out. Josiah marches his armies out to a fortification called Megiddo, and there he decides to engage Egypt in battle. He loses, he's killed. And Egypt places a puppet king over Judah, a man by the name of Jehoiakim. He will really serve there as, as just a, an agent of Egypt until, again, he does something rather strange. He switches allegiances. Now, you've got to understand that, that all through this, the kings of Israel have, have lost their trust in the Lord. And so they're playing a political game, trying to figure out which of these big kingdoms is going to emerge victorious because you want to be aligned with the winner. And so different kings... Pick who they think will be the winner. At different times, you know, this king, he's appointed by Egypt, but then he looks and he says, hold on a second, I don't think Egypt's going to come out of this thing as the winner. So he switches allegiance, which actually turned out for a brief time to be a very wise move because in 605, Babylon comes in with their armies and they defeat Egypt. The king, who is actually not a king yet by this time, again, it's one of those pieces of the story of Daniel where historians go, hold on a second, Daniel's wrong. He's not actually king yet. Technically, he's not, but everyone knows he is. And actually, the Babylonians count 
their years of kingship different than other nations. So by 604, we're going to call him King Nebuchadnezzar is ruling Babylon, and he brings his armies into that area of the world on two successive campaigns. Um, Now, the kings of Judah are playing sort of this very, very dangerous game of who we're going to align ourselves with. At different times, they seem to get it right, aligning with Babylon, but then, for some mysterious unknown reason, they switch sides. Which leads to this moment in 597, where Babylon comes and says, we're basically done playing this game, and we're just taking over. You can read the story there, it's recorded in 2 Kings of what Babylon does. This would be the moment where Daniel and his friends, uh, the prophet Ezekiel would be among those, who are taken from Judah and taken into exile, which basically means they're prisoners of war. They're taken from their home country, taken to other places where they're going to live and work and serve the empire. And Babylon's been playing this game just like Assyria did all along. They take one nation and the people and move them to another nation. It's sort of to disrupt and kind of cause chaos so that no one can cause an uprising. Everyone's away from home, away from what's familiar. It has the effect of leaving Israel, or Judah, sorry, with... Essentially, no skilled labor, no leadership, no government. They've taken it all. You can read the description there in the book of 2 Kings. They strip Judah bare. They leave in their place another puppet king who will serve as the king of of Judah, who again will do a very puzzling thing a few years later when he decides, rather than serving Babylon, let's rebel. Again, why these things happen, we don't really have a lot of information, but we know the outcome in 587, 586. Babylon comes one last time and says, we're done. And this time when they arrive in Jerusalem, they literally take it apart. Like physically take it apart. The temple is destroyed at this point. They literally take apart anything of value, even bronze columns, Don't think of bronze as that particularly valuable. That's the point in the description in Scripture. They take the bronze columns, break them into pieces, and haul those back to Babylon. What you're reading there is a description of a nation being brought to nothing. doesn't mean it was totally depopulated. There's some people left behind. But no one who would have had any ability to make anything, to accomplish anything, to lead anything. Babylon, meanwhile, is growing in strength. They've brought all these skilled laborers, these young, wise men into their kingdom. It's part of, as I said, their strategy to destabilize these other nations and also to grow their own empire. So they're bringing in all this labor and skill to grow this empire as fast as they can. In the year 562, Nebuchadnezzar dies. So this is part of the book of Daniel. So now, just so we're aware, the book of Daniel is really kind of beginning in this time as he's in exile, and it's going to actually bring us all the way down into this point here, 70 years later. From 562 on, we're going to see a a rapid succession of Nebuchadnezzar's family who are going to take over leadership of his nation. It's going to, uh, it's a time of chaos until finally this king arrives on the scene. Um, And he brings some stability, but he also brings something very different. He brings the worship of a new god. So Babylon is a kingdom that's worshiping Marduk. That's their god. They're very faithful to him. They believe he has brought victory in all these battles and wars. This king comes along and he worships the god of the moon, or the moon goddess. Uh, as a result, he runs into some huge political issues and he's forced to leave Babylon. 
he goes essentially into almost like a self-imposed exile for 10 years. While he's gone, his nation starts breaking out into some turmoil, into some civil war. This is important because in the book of Daniel, we get a description of a man by the name of Belshazzar who's king of Babylon. And most historians look and go, aha, you see, Daniel's not actually history. Because we know the list of the kings of Babylon. There is no Belshazzar. He's, he's not a king. So you see, Daniel gets it wrong. This is frequently the kind of charges brought against Daniel. The thing is that Belshazzar is this fellow's son. And when he's gone for the ten years, his son steps in essentially as the, the king in waiting. He will never get his turn. Because when um, this fellow arrives back, there is again some turmoil, and as a result, the nation of Babylon is weakened, and we meet a new man and a new kingdom, a man by the name of Cyrus the Great. Uh, we could debate why he's great, uh, but historians call him the great. He's certainly great in terms of power and authority, not so much in terms of character, although in our story in Scripture, he actually shows up multiple times because this will be the man through whom God will allow his people to return back to Judah. So you can find that in the last few verses of 2 Chronicles. You're going to find that in a few other of the prophecies. So Cyrus the Great comes into power in 539. He ends the exile of Judah. He allows them to go back to their land because he's got a totally different way of dealing with foreign powers. Rather than destroying them and leaving them in chaos, Cyrus decides it's way better to make allies and friends. So we will let all the exiles go home. We will treat them really well. And what that means for Judah is they're allowed to go back and rebuild their nation. Cyrus is succeeded by his son, um, who is succeeded by his son and his son and his son. And it's, again, a series of fairly weak kings. Again, it starts to have that feeling of a nation and a little bit of decline. They end up um, sort of killing each other off in a series of strange, strange decisions. Actually, um, the one of them ends up killing his brother and marrying his sister. It's, it's, it's typical ancient history where they start panicking and try to gather as much authority as they can by doing bad things. But in hindsight, we can look back and go, ooh, we see the beginning of the end. If you're doing that kind of stuff, your kingdom is on the way down. Uh, the last king <clears throat> of any sort of authority over the kingdom of Persia is this fellow Darius, who's not a family member of this. Chaos has happened. These guys are falling apart, this whole nation. He steps in and takes over the nation. He's fairly highly regarded by his own nation and by some other nations around him. He is the one, by the way, that gets the bright idea of attacking Greece which is not like an organized nation, it's city-state. So if you're familiar with you know, the Battle of Marathon, some of those kind of stories, this is where Darius steps in. Darius is there uh, leading his nation into these kind of things. He's eventually succeeded by his son, Xerxes, who, again, may be a name that starts to ring bells, because if you know some of your Bible history, this guy starts to feature fairly large, and especially his son, Artaxerxes. Um, this... I didn't print this off right. Xerxes does not murder his son. Xerxes is murdered, and then his son, Artaxerxes, takes over. That's important. Because in 445, Artaxerxes issues a decree. It's recorded in Nehemiah, I think it's chapter 2, that the temple in Israel should be rebuilt. Again, this is a piece of the story of Daniel that's going to be important as we get a couple months in. So there's a key date for us. Uh, again, we get this short series of kings 
that are going to kind of follow up from Artaxerxes, including, I think, a couple of his kids and that kind of thing. But the kingdom's starting to weaken, mainly because they keep attacking Greece and they just can't win. In fact, by the year 359, Philip II unites Greece because they've been attacked so many times. And he has a son who's a fairly famous guy. Perhaps you've heard of him. Alexander the Great, uh, who becomes king, of, or leader anyway, of Greece. Uh, and Alexander decides it's time for some revenge, <laughs> which is kind of a funny thing because he wasn't alive when Darius was attacking Greece, but he takes revenge for what took place 150 or so years earlier, and he leads the Greek armies on a campaign to destroy Persia. Over the next number of years, he does exactly what he commits to do. He literally dismantles the Persian Empire. By the time he dies, there is no more Persia. It's gone. Um, Alexander, he never makes it home. He dies on campaign, and he divides his kingdom. Most of us know it ends up as four key parts. That's actually not his original decision. His original decision is to have 28 parts that he kind of gives little bits of his kingdom to all his different leaders. Uh, but that doesn't last long. And most of you, if you know the story of some of the Greek history, by 275, we have four kingdoms left, which will eventually end up as essentially three kingdoms. One that is sort of what we would know as, as Macedonia or Greece. Another one that encompasses Asia Minor and Syria that takes in Judah. And then another that encompasses uh, Egypt. The one that we're interested in that's going to show up in the story of Daniel is this fellow from the Seleucid family who ends up being the leader of the part of the kingdom that encompasses um, Asia Minor and Judah. And we'll come to him, also known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay, there we go. There's our timeline, just so we kind of can kind of understand what's going on. And as I said, most of what's important to us is going to take place in this time, but the prophecies that Daniel gives are going to span all the way here. And it's incredible. A lot of people come to the book of Daniel, and again, they say, well, he gets his history wrong. He actually probably gets it right. That's the interesting part. A lot of other historians probably give a very politicized history, leaving out all the bad stuff about kings like Sennacherib and Nebuchadnezzar, these kind of guys, whereas Daniel comes in and corrects some of it for us. The other part where a lot of historians say, look, he couldn't have written here because the prophecies he makes are so, so stunningly specific and accurate that he had to have actually been writing after the fact. Uh, but Jesus actually calls him a prophet in Mark or Matthew 24, uh, and everything that we see and know from history suggests that he is actually writing and living in the 6th century, most of it probably the book of Daniel coming from his pen itself. So that's kind of the overview of where the book goes. Uh, we'll kind of deal with some of the other quirky little things in the book, like the fact that it's really two parts, so chapter 1 to 6 is kind of the stories part. A lot of the stories that we maybe know of Daniel come from those chapters, Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, the kind of stories that you might have grown up hearing in Sunday school when we sang, you know, dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, uh, that kind of stuff. The whole idea was, you know, Daniel's really just a story about courage, which it is, but the problem is, is there's a whole other half to the book. From chapter 7 to 12 are a series of visions that Daniel has or interprets that speak of things to come. And a lot of people just sort of stop reading about chapter 6 because what comes next is, is pretty interesting strange, sometimes even frightening. So we'll do our best to, uh, 
to deal with that as we come. The other part that's interesting about the book of Daniel is it's one of only two books in the entire Bible where there's two languages used to write it. So chapter 1 and then I think it's uh, 8 to 12 is written in Hebrew and chapter 2 through 7 is written in Aramaic. Aramaic is the language of the kingdom of Babylon. It's a cuneiform language, which means it's really hard to learn. So when you read the opening verses of Daniel, as we will in just a moment, and you read that Daniel's brought into this kingdom and he's going to be taught the literature and the ways of Babylon, just read, this must be one really, really bright guy. Because if Don was there, if it was Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Don, Don's getting recruited to dig ditches, not learn the cuneiform language. That's the one, if you've ever seen those clay tablets, and it's just a series of sort of wedge-shaped letters. They actually did it by using wedge-shaped reeds that they would press into wet clay. Brutally difficult, difficult language. And Daniel is picked to be one of those who is going to learn that and be part of Babylon. Let me read the verses, and then we'll look at a few things uh, coming out of chapter 1, 1 to 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, so we're, we're back here in this point, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Notice two things there. Notice, firstly, who did it. Right, Because we could look at this historical timeline and start to feel like, well, nations rise and fall, and the one who's the strongest gets victory. But Daniel, when he records his story, says, no, no, no. That's not what's going on here. God's at work. The Lord did this. The second thing I want you to see, it's going to become important by chapter 5, 4, 5, is that he took the articles, the vessels of the house of God. When when Babylon came, when Nebuchadnezzar came, and he finally destroys the temple, he empties it. And he takes the things home, and we'll find out in a few weeks' time that that's part of the problem that Nebuchadnezzar brings on his own people. Uh, we're halfway through verse 2. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief of the eunuchs, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and the nobility, youths without blemish, which is actually an interesting description. It's actually the same way that a Hebrew would have written about a sacrifice being brought to the temple, a, a sacrifice without blemish. It's almost like Daniel looks through the lenses and says, my life is like a sacrifice to the Lord. Good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans is just the ethnic group from which the Babylonians come. So when you're reading in the Bible and you read Chaldeans, just substitute in Babylonians. It's just their tribal background. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. You notice in the names, the, the names of God will come probably next week. We're going to run out of time to do it this week. But Dan-el, God. Hananiah, Yahweh. These, name, these men bear the name speaking of the character of God. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. In other words, he takes those names and he's going to change them. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Now, what do I think we need to see in those opening verses? Partly we see this. 
Partly we see the background, but partly we start to see how it is that Daniel is going to choose to sing. He's going to see three things. We'll see them in these verses, but they'll, they'll span the whole book. The first thing that Daniel sees and refuses to let go of is an absolute certain confidence that despite appearances, the Lord's in control. Despite appearances. It doesn't look like God's in control. I mean, if you just think back to what's happened to this young man, like I said, probably early to middle teenage years, everything taken. The prophecies that speak of him being made a eunuch, all those things His life is radically altered. And what's his conclusion? God's in control. Never failed to see it. And I hope for us, when we hit one of those moments where we just are struggling to sing, you know those moments, that we will remember that despite appearances, the Lord's in control. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those aquariums where you can kind of see stuff on the surface and you're looking out over the water and you see fish and then you could go down the stairs and there's like one of those giant windows where you see into the tank below the water. It's like, da- it's like Daniel just continues to say, I will look through the window below the surface. I know what it looks like on the surface. On the surface, it looks like God is not in control of this. On the surface, it actually looks like the opposite because if you go back and you read how these kings think, their instant conclusion is, if we have won a war, our God has beat your God. You can go read it. Go read it in 2 Kings. You'll read that when Sennacherib comes way, way back here and he attacks Judah and does all these things, his instant conclusion is, my God beat your God. In fact, that's what he says standing outside the walls of Jerusalem to the the armies huddled behind the wall, to Hezekiah. We have been to all these other nations. They all told us the same thing. They told us that our God would save us, but our God keeps winning. That's That's their view. If we beat you, Our God be yours. It's the same thing. You go all the way back into the the old stories, back to David when he's fighting with the Philistines. And what happens when the Philistines won? What's the instant conclusion? Your God lost. But Daniel won't go there. I know what appearances look like, but my God is still in control. In order to be able to sing in a strange land, you've got to know that your God is still in control, even when it doesn't look like it. Second thing that Daniel knows and will not let go of is an absolute conviction that there are two kingdoms and they are at war. There always have been, there will be until Jesus comes and ends it. Scripture speaks to them in many different ways. Kingdom of light versus darkness. Kingdom of God versus Satan. When Daniel speaks of it, what I want you to pay attention to is the way he speaks of Jerusalem and Shinar. Going, Shinar, where's that? It was right there. We read it very, very quickly in verse 2. And he brought them, meaning Nebuchadnezzar, brought them to the land of Shinar. Well, like, hold on a second. I thought he brought them to Babylon. He did. But it's not the word Daniel chooses to use to write of this. So what's Shinar? You'd have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 11 to discover what Shinar is the first time it's just talked about. Because in Genesis chapter 11, it is the place that is actually the home to Babylon. But that's not what it started out as. It started out as the home of a tower that a group of people said, we will get together, we will unite ourselves, and we will build a tower and we will reach God in the land of Shinar. Zechariah 5 picks up that same language and describes Shinar as the place of wickedness. In other words, it comes to just be associated with everything that is against God. We do this still to this day. 
We have, we have places that are associated with things, right? If, if we talked about Hollywood, we don't necessarily mean like a place on a map with a big sign. We might, because there really is a place. But don't we tend to mean something a little bit bigger than that? Rightly or wrongly, we tend to associate it with, with more of a, of a system and the things around it. We might do the same with a place like, like Las Vegas, if we're picking on places, right? That there's things associated with the place. Shinar was wickedness. And David knew he had been taken to the land of Shinar. That's what that means when he, when he writes the story that way. But you see, David never loses faithfulness to Jerusalem. And again, it's not so much about a city Although in part it's that. The city he known has been long destroyed. Even if he was to go back, he couldn't even worship God there because the temple's gone. But it's the kingdom. Just think how this story unfolds. Let me just kind of point out a couple things of, of how he speaks of this. You know, if we, if we go a little bit farther in the story, we're actually going to discover that David will speak occasionally of Jerusalem. By chapter 6, verse 4, there's a famous story, the precursor to the lion's den story, where Daniel prays. All right? So he opens the windows, and he prays. Do you know what the description is in Daniel 6, verse 4? He prays facing Jerusalem. And you want to know what the, the, the evil sort of men around Nebuchadnezzar point to? They say, we want him charged with regard to the kingdom. That's a very, what they are doing is they're seeing that the issue for Daniel is not just an issue of prayer, it's an issue of allegiance. In other words, they have taken Daniel into Babylon. They have done everything they could to turn him into a Babylonian. They educated him, they renamed him, they do all these things, and at the end of the day, what do we discover? Daniel's allegiance is still Jerusalem. Oh, you can put him in Babylon, but you can't make him a Babylonian. Later in the book, in chapter 9, verse 22, just a fascinating little note. It's just sort of, by the way, as, as the story's being told, Daniel's writing or recording a little bit of, of time, of a certain point of a day. It, it's sort of, the comment's almost a throwaway, a throwaway one, unless you remember that we are 70 years by this point, after he's left Jerusalem, the temple's gone. Daniel 9, 22, he talks about, in the, in the time of the evening sacrifice. What does that mean? That means that 70 years later, as he thinks through the time of day, his orientation is still around the worship of God taking place in Jerusalem, even though it's gone. Because he never lost sight of the kingdom that he was loyal to. Now, if you look at chapter 1, verse 7, there's a play on words. We'll come back to this next week because we're just about out of time. I just want to point it out in terms of this allegiance issue. And the chief of the eunuchs, verse 7, gave them names. That's a Greek verb. Um, yesem, which means to put or to place. In other words, they placed on him a name. He had no choice. What's interesting is through the book, you notice how Daniel and his friends refer to each other. They haven't taken the names. He remains Daniel to them. But, but he's, he has a name placed on him, and then we we get to verse 8, and all of a sudden, and this is what we'll look at next week, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. The verb shows up there. It doesn't show up in English, so the play on words is lost in English. But, but they place on him a name, and here's what Daniel does in response. I will not place upon myself the dietary requirements you asked of me. It's a rebellion against Babylon. He draws a line in the sand, and he says, you can educate me, you can change my name, you can force me to learn a language, but I picked this line. I'm not a Babylonian. Now, some people have speculated, why is it kosher? Is it because of idols? I don't think it has to do with any of that. 
We'll look at that next week. I think the answer is actually, I think, in chapter 11 of why he does this. But he draws a line in the sand. And can I ask you this? Have you ever drawn a line somewhere in your life? Because if you haven't, and we are actually engaged in a battle between two kingdoms, do you know the one kingdom's just going to suck you further and further and further? I don't know what the line needs to be or ought to be for you, but I'm pretty sure there ought to be something somewhere where you say, you know what? I follow the Lord. I will be loyal to him. And this is the line. I just picked it. The last thing Daniel refuses to let go of, and we're going to end with this one, is he refuses to let go of his confidence and trust in the grace of God. Again, it's one of those ones that shows up with the language he chooses to use. The Lord gave Jehoiakim. That's the language of grace. But if you look at chapter 1, I think it's verse uh, 7. Is it? Or 9? 9. The Lord gave Daniel favor and compassion. It shows up again, I think, in verse 17. Daniel just has this confidence that there is a God and he's in control despite what appearances look like. And that God is gracious. When we look at the names of these young guys, we'll do that next week, you'll actually see it show up even brighter there in their names. But David's just confident. The God he serves is a God of grace. In order to sing in a strange land, you've got to believe that God's in control. That there is a battle, that there's two kingdoms at war, but your God is a God of grace. You want to know why, for me, this is such good news? It's because when I read the story of Daniel... I remember as a kid singing that song, like literally we sang it in Sunday school, Dare to be a Daniel, I won't torture you now, but. You know, when you're a kid and you long to be that, I think all of us are, but then we realize somewhere along the line that we're not. Like if I was taken into exile, if I was part of this, the thousands who were marched to Babylon, I'm not Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Don, it's, it's not that. I'm one of the rest of the multitude who just kind of are lost in the chaos, who end up in Psalm 137, verse 4, saying, I don't know how to do this. I'm one of the ones who doesn't have answers. Very different than Daniel. When I hear it's like, hey, let's all be Daniels. It's like, well, I know I'm not. I know that if it weren't for the grace and mercy of God, I have no hope. See, this last one for me is the most precious of them all. We don't, We don't need to wrestle too much with, am I faithful to God like Daniel? Like he is. He's the example of faithfulness. Because we have a Savior who died for us. He died for those who would fail and fall short. And then he pledged to keep us. He pledged to be the one who would keep us from stumbling. He pledged to be the one to present us before God with great joy. And I hope as we walk through the book of Daniel, we will never lose sight of Jesus Christ, the one who is our 